Episode 2. What's in a car name? Does it really matter how we identify our drives? And how did 2019 fare for those buying and selling classic sports cars? Welcome to the Classic Sports Car, a tribute to the sporting classics of a bygone era. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Classic Sports Car. I'm your host, Tom Dunn. As I record this, we're heading into the very tail end of 2019. And as we get to the end of the year, I always like to take a look back, as most people do on the year, but specifically, I like to take a look back at the sports car market. How is the value of various sports cars done this past year compared to previous years or previous decades? Are there any trends that are developing or are there past trends that we're starting to see fade away? So I ran across an article on Bloomberg.com written by Christy Pladson. This was back in September of 2019. And the title is, The Classic Car Frenzy is Over, for skittish collectors. Now I'll highlight some of the key points that Christie makes in this article. She starts off by saying, the classic car market is coming to terms with a new reality as years of climbing prices and spirited buying give way to a new era of more discriminating collectors wary of overpaying in unpredictable times. Demand for cars costing more than $1 million collapsed at the 2019 Monterey Car Week in California last month, according to Haggerty which compiles an index tracking collector car prices. The sell-through ratio, a gauge of the success of auctions, slumped to 48% from 67% for these elite vehicles, while sales rates held up for cheaper models. The trend highlights the unsustainable pace of growth for prices of vintage cars in recent years and how the market is adapting. A glut of inventory has taken a toll, and some investor collectors new to the game are proving more skittish than traditional enthusiasts in the face of economic uncertainty. So a couple things that she references here. One is the 2019 Monterey Car Week. Now, if you're not familiar with Monterey Car Week, that is basically a week of heaven for classic car lovers. It takes place in late August in Monterey, California, and all kinds of different events and activities about and around classic cars takes place. There's a number of car shows, Concours d'Elegance, which are the car competitions for the greatest restoration, the most prestige car, the most perfect representation of a car that might be 50, 60, or 70 years old. And to win an award, say the best of show at Monterey Car Week, is the equivalent of winning the Super Bowl or winning the World Series, the World Championship, whatever sports analogy you want to you want to compare it to. Monterey has become kind of the, or at least one of the top car events in the entire world. So there's different car shows and concourse, the elegance that takes place. There's a number of different auctions. There's all kinds of different auction houses that host auctions at the Monterey Car Week. And there's also get-togethers and even racing that takes place over that one-week period. And we've seen over the last, primarily the last 10 years, prices at the, some of the auctions and primarily at the Monterey Car Week just breaking record year after year after year. 
and it's often seen as kind of this benchmark of, of where the classic car industry is at and the value and prices of certain vehicles. Another name she references in the article is Haggerty. Now, Haggerty is one of the big players in the classic car insurance market. So, of course, they're going to be very up to the value and estimates of what a number of these cars are that they're being asked to insure. The article continues. Low interest rates and disappointing stock market drove hordes of new buyers to collector cars after the 2008 financial crisis, pushing prices up across the board and ushering in a golden age that lasted much of the last decade. That pulled more cars into the market, including, for the first time, 1980s-era models like the Ferrari 308 and Volkswagen Golf GTI that catered to the tastes of a new Generation X and millennial collectors. The very best cars continue to sell at eye-watering levels. In August 2018, three years after overall classic car prices last peaked, a Ferrari 250 GTO sold for $48.4 million, setting a new auction record. Another Ferrari of the same model sold privately for $70 million the same year. Meanwhile, the lower end of the market for vehicles below $100,000, including cars from the 80s, has continued to boom. The segment saw the smallest drop in sell-through rate and unusually represented the largest share of lots sold at auction in Monterey, one of the world's premier classic car gatherings. Now, the phrase that she uses there, the sell-through rate. Now, the sell-through rate is the ratio or the rate of cars that come to auction and actually get sold. Many cars get put up for auction but don't end up selling because the original owner the seller has placed a reserve price, and the auction price doesn't reach that, so the car's not sold. Since Haggerty was referenced in the article, I went over to Haggerty.com and looked up their recap of Monterey Car Week. Here's an article from August 16th of 2019 where Haggerty recapped the Monterey Car Week. Haggerty's article states, The 2019 Monterey auctions wrapped up Saturday evening with a total preliminary sales total coming in at $245.5 million. Whether it's threat of recession, broad economic volatility, or too many cars crammed into too few hours, there's no denying this year's Monterey Auction Week results were depressed when you compare the results to recent years. This amount is the lowest tally since 2011's $197 million. Standard measures like average sales price, median sales price, and sell-through rate were all down, as was performance against estimate. The average high bid was 16% below the low estimate this year versus 10% last year. With all these statistics signaling a slumping market, the question will be whether this is felt in the broader market or will be isolated to this week's sales. The top sale of the week was the LM Spec 1994 McLaren F1, which sold for a hefty $19.8 million, followed by a 1958 Ferrari 250 California Long Wheelbase Spider, which sold for $9.9 million, and a 1962 Ferrari 250 GT short wheelbase that sold for $8.14 million. goes on to state that while the upper end of the market is largely responsible for lower-than-predicted sales results, vehicles priced below $75,000 fared better. This was the only price bracket to see more vehicles bid to condition appropriate amounts compared to 2018. In particular, Traditional classics from the 60s and 70s in this price bracket sold for above their condition-appropriate values, more so than vehicles from other eras. Examples include a restored 1970 Triumph TR6 that sold for $28,000, which was 112% above current market value, and a 74 Volkswagen Carmen Ghia Coupe that sold for $20,350, 
which was 80% above current market value. This supports the ongoing trend that the entry level remains the healthiest and most active segment in the broader market outside the auctions. So how does this impact the everyday classic car enthusiast who's most likely not looking at very many $100,000 plus cars, let alone a seven-figure investment vehicle? Well, it's hard to say. There's been a lot of discussion over the past decade or so regarding the astronomical rise in prices that some of these cars have attained and whether it's good for the classic car world. Many believe it's resulted in many cars being bought and sold entirely for investment purposes by people who are not really that into cars at all. And it results in many rare cars being snatched up and hidden away so as not to threaten their value until the owner takes them back to market a few years later. Many people complain that these cars are being removed from the public eye since they're too valuable to risk. And as a result, no one gets a chance to see them do what they were designed to do, which was drive. I think that is true in a lot of cases. But on the other hand, I think these huge increases in values have been good for the, for lack of a better name, the, the more common man among us. The guy who may have had an old car maybe sitting around in his garage for years and years and never felt it was worth it to dust it off or to fix it up or to possibly restore it. Maybe now he sees it as something worth his time and energy and gets it back on the road or at least into the classified ads to collect a little more money than he thought he could and give someone else a chance to bring it back to life and back onto the street and give us an opportunity to see it and to hear it, which is what these cars were designed to do. So I think that for most of us, who are never going to be able to buy an old Ferrari McLaren anyways. This may be a good thing to see these prices increase, well, at least the prices in kind of the entry-level market, which is what appears to be what the market is doing now. These really big top-end multi-million dollar vehicles are starting to plateau, but has driven the interest up in some of the, the more affordable ones. As they say, a rising tide raises all the boats in the harbor. Hopefully that's what's happening for all of us down here at the bottom end. And the more affordable cars that we have may just be worth a little bit more in the next couple of years, or at least they're worth a little bit more now than they were 10 years ago. And that's an incentive for us to keep them running, to keep them in good shape, and to get them out on the road and let other people appreciate them also. Sports cars, GT coupe, sedan. You've probably heard all these terms used to identify various cars, but what exactly do they all mean? Are there specific and definitive elements that define each of these names? Well, if you're like me, you've probably developed your own understanding over time of what these different types of identifiers are when they come to cars. But then you'll hear or read something that's kind of contrary to what you might have thought. So let's dive into some of these names and try to get an understanding at least where they originated from and how they were originally used. So since this is the classic sports car, let's start with the term sports car. Back in 2016, when automotive journalist Jack Baruth was working for Road & Track, he wrote an article titled, No One Knows What Sports Car Actually Means Anymore. Remember when names used to mean something? He says in the article, In the post-war era, a sports car was any car that seated to had a soft top, and could be used for competition. Thus, the Sports Car Club of America. An MGTC was a sports car, as was an XK120, or a Joet Jupiter. That same car with a permanent hardtop was considered a Grand Tourer, meaning it would be appropriate for a young man to drive around Europe in varying weather conditions. Thus, the MGB GT 
was an MGB sports car upgraded to Grand Tour configuration. The definition of GT car has always been more flexible than the definition of sports car because it's based around prospective usage. In the modern era, virtually anything from a Scion FRS to a Mustang to an Aston Vanquish would serve the would-be Grand Tour well, and so we can call them all GT cars. End of paragraph. So Jack Baruth is looking at a very narrow and definitive definition for sports car based upon its origin in the post-World War II era for a car that was really designed first and foremost to be competitive on the racetrack. And if you think of the term sports car, what does that really infer? Well, sports in the car world is racing. So it was designed to go racing. And if it was designed to go racing, it didn't need a lot of extra things that would make it slower by making it heavier. There was no need for back seats because there was no need for passengers. In a sense, there was no need for a roof. Obviously, no need for radio and heater and other creature comforts because all that would do is weigh down the car, and a car that's heavier is not going to perform nearly as well as a lighter one. If we look at the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it defines a sports car as a low, small, usually two-passenger automobile designed for quick response, easy maneuverability, and high-speed driving. So there you go. Two seats, a convertible, sporty driving experience, raceable, minimal creature comforts, such as roll-up windows or even space for luggage. Now, I mentioned roll-up windows a couple of times here. In the 50s, a convertible often didn't have glass windows that rolled down into the door. It had plastic, basically, curtains that would snap onto the top of the convertible top and then snap down to the door frame. And it wasn't until later in the 60s that you actually had roll-up glass windows that were designed into the small, lightweight sports cars. Because once again, you didn't need glass windows because if you were going racing, you wouldn't have your windows up, you'd have them down. And if you're, they were going to be down, that was just going to be extra weight if they were glass. So let's just make them plastic and you can just remove them completely. And we see a number of car manufacturers following that description. So as the article indicated, an MGB is a small two-seat convertible sports car. But MG also made the MGB GT, and that was basically an MGB with a permanent hardtop. Now, Triumph did the same with their Spitfire. Spitfire was a small two-seat convertible car. Triumph made a hardtop version of that with a six-cylinder engine, and they called that the Triumph GT6. But there's some cars that kind of broke that rule. A 1950s Austin Healey 104 was a two-seat open sports car with a four-cylinder engine in it. That car evolved into the Austin Healey 106. It was basically the same body with a six-cylinder engine, but it also had a bench seat in the back. So technically, four people could ride in it. So was that no longer a sports car? It'd be hard to make that argument since it was basically the same car with a larger engine as the 104 that was a two-seater. But if you go by that definition, if you're going racing, you'd want the 104 instead of the 106, even if the 106 had a six-cylinder versus a four-cylinder engine. And well, we can debate that for, for hours and hours on end. Nowadays, I think most people accept a broader definition of sports car, and especially the manufacturers, when they come to naming their cars, at least their modern cars, take a much greater liberty when they come to defining what those vehicles are. 
But when you go back to the 50s and 60s, to the classic era, there was a much more definitive delineator between sports cars and non-sports cars. Which brings me to GT, the next class. So GT stands for Grand Touring, or in Italian, Gran Turismo. So a GT has more creature comforts. It's going to have windows that roll up, a fixed roof, more comfortable driving experience over longer distances for both passenger and the driver. You might want to think of a sports car as catering to the driver and the driving experience, where a GT takes into consideration the addition of a passenger. It's going to be room for luggage, or at least more luggage. And the ride's going to be a little subtler, a little bit softer than a sports car. A sports car is going to have a very stiff suspension because it needs to handle very well on the track. That type of suspension can get very uncomfortable when you're driving in that vehicle for an extended amount of time. So GTs are going to have a little bit softer and subtler suspension. They might have just as powerful of an engine, but the overall riding and driving experience is going to be a little bit more enjoyable. And then you have some GTs that are convertibles. It's a car with a GT characteristics with a top that comes down. And that brings us to convertibles and the various types and terms that have been used over the years to identify them. Now, in the broadest sense, you can think of a convertible as a car that can convert from being an enclosed car to one with an open top. You have to remember, many of the car descriptors originated prior to the automobile. Many of them were used to define certain types of horse-drawn carriages. And when the horseless carriage came onto the scene, many of the names that were used to define characteristics of a horseless carriage kind of came with it. In some instances, especially with modern cars, the marketing departments have changed or influenced how the terms are used and how they differ from how they were originally conceived. Now that's another hotly debatable topic with lots of opinions, but I'm going to stick to what I came up with from my research in the terms of convertibles. Here are the most commonly understood definitions for the variations. So convertible, as I mentioned, any vehicle in which the top can come off or fold down. Then you have a roadster. A roadster is typically a two-seat car, simple removable top, and older ones have side curtains instead of roll-up windows. Although during the 60s, you pretty much see those side curtains replaced with roll-up windows, as I mentioned earlier. Then you have a speedster. Well, a speedster is really not a convertible. So a speedster is a cruder version of a roadster with no top or side curtains or windows at all. So a speedster doesn't have a top whatsoever. It was designed originally as an open-aired car. You might have heard the term spider. That's typically an Italian term used to define a car that's pretty much the same as a roadster. How about the word cabriolet? That's a French term for convertible, and it's used primarily with European cars. The original cabriolet was a small, single-horse-drawn carriage with two wheels and a top that could fold out to cover the two riding occupants of the carriage. How about a drophead coupe? Now, that's a British term used to define a convertible where the folded top stows above the body, not inside of it. Of course, to add more confusion to the mix, Jaguar sold the XK150 as both a roadster and a drophead coupe. So the drophead coupe had the top that folded down and sat behind the back seats, where the roadster had a top that had to be actually removed from the body. There's the term targa. That's typically used to define a removable roof section. So instead of having the entire roof fold down, just the middle section is removed. So the back windows and some type of frame stay in place. You see a targa 
on the Porsche 911, Porsche 914, Ferrari 308s had this type of roof. But in Ferrari, it wasn't called a Targa, it was called a Spider. And then some American cars had a T-top, so that's similar to a Targa, but the removable section comes off in two pieces, one over the driver and one over the passenger, and there's a support section between the two. When both sides are removed, the windshield frame and the support form a T, hence the word T-top. And there's even the term ragtop, which has been thrown around and used for various types of convertibles. Ragtop just kind of being a term to define a fabric cloth that goes over the car. So we've talked about sports cars and GTs and convertibles. Now let's jump over to coupes and sedans. Yes, there is a distinction. Now most people assume that the designation of a coupe and a sedan are derived from how many doors the vehicle has. If it's got only two doors, it's a coupe. And if it's got four doors, it's a sedan. Well, for most situations, that general classification would be correct, but that's not really what technically differentiates them. Now, some of these differentiations came from the auto manufacturers themselves. Some, from my understanding, came from the auto insurance company that really needed a way to define different types of vehicles for insurance purposes. So we jump over to our friends at Wikipedia. It states, a coupe is a fixed roof car with a sloping rear roof line and one or two rows of seats. However, there is often debate surrounding whether a coupe must have two doors or whether cars with four doors can also be considered coupes. In the 1940s and 50s, coupes were distinguished from sedans by their shorter roof area and sportier profile. Similarly, in more recent times, when a model is sold in both coupe and sedan body styles, generally, the coupe is sportier and more compact. But the 1977 version of international standard ISO 3833 road vehicles, types, terms, and definitions states, coupe as having two doors along with a fixed roof, usually with limited rear volume, at least two seats in at least one row, and at least two side windows. On the other hand, the United States Society of Automotive Engineers publication J1100 does not specify the number of doors, instead defining a coupe as having a rear interior volume of less than 33 cubic feet. The definition of coupe started to blur when manufacturers began to produce cars with a two plus two body style, which have a sleek sloping roof line, two doors, and two functional seats up front, plus two tiny seats in back. And if we jump over to CarMax, they state that the first coupes appeared in the 1800s when carriage builders tweak traditional coach designs to shorten them and make it easier for passengers to climb aboard. As the popularity of coupe cars grew in the 1960s, more automotive designers welded hardtops to two-seat open cars as a nod to their carriage routes. So you see various definitions and items that define a coupe versus a sedan. Some definers indicate two doors versus four doors. Another one indicates less than 33 cubic feet in the rear of the car. So that's the area behind the front row of seats. Some have defined a coupe as a car not having a B pillar, where a sedan is a car that has a B pillar. So let's talk about pillars for a moment here. The pillars are the vertical supports that hold up the car's roof. So if you look at a car from the side, there's going to be metal structures that go from the body of the car up to the roof. And that's where you'll have the windshield attached and also the windows. Seen from the side, they're labeled A, B, C, and even sometimes D. 
starting from the front and going to the back. Now they're identified with these letters because they resemble their look, not their placement front to back. So it's not the first one is A, the next one is B, the next one is C. You've got the very first one is the A pillar, and that's the frontmost pillar supporting the car's roof. That's where you've got the windshield meeting that pillar and the front window, and the first vertical support of the roof. And it's usually angled, and it resembles a letter A. The next pillar on many cars is a B pillar, and that's the pillar between the first and second door or window. It resembles a letter B with the window, the top portion of the letter, and the second door, the lower portion of the letter. You then have a C pillar, which sits behind the rear door and is the last pillar in most cars and will often look like the letter C as it wraps around the rear side window. There's even a D pillar in some cars if you've got a station wagon or an SUV. And that would be the very last pillar in those vehicles. So cars, if they do not have a B pillar, so if they don't have that vertical support just behind or right at the end of the driver's door, it doesn't have a B pillar goes from having an A pillar to a C pillar. And in some definitions of coupe, it would be a vehicle with no B pillar. So if there's no B pillar, it would be a coupe. If it's got a B pillar, it would be a sedan in some definitions. And yes, there are various manufacturers, either currently or in the past, that have made a vehicle in both a two-door and a four-door version. I'm thinking of the Honda Civic, the Honda Accord, and the Volkswagen Golf. They made those in two- and four-door versions. And currently... The Honda Civic two-door is referred to as a coupe, and the four-door is referred to as a sedan. So if that's the definition that you've always had, in most cases, you're going to be correct. Although there, there could technically be a two-door sedan and a four-door coupe. So there you go. Sports cars, GT, convertible, sedan, and coupes. All defined for you. So now confusion and misunderstanding of what these various terms all mean can now end. Except they can't really. Because when we look at modern cars, there's a lot of conflict in the naming variation compared to what I just talked about and how these terms were originally conceived and designed to identify various types of cars. Let's take a look at a modern sports car manufacturer, Porsche. One of their vehicles, the Porsche Boxster, is all over the map from a naming standpoint. Let's start off with what the term Boxster even means. So the Boxster is actually two words combined, Boxer and Roadster. Now Boxer is the type of engine that both the Boxster and the Porsche 911 have. It is a horizontally opposed or sometimes called flat, flat four or flat six. And it's flat because it's not vertical, it's not a V, the engine lays flat, the pistons are flat in the block and they oppose each other. So when the pistons fire, if you could see into them, it almost would look like two fists boxing each other. So that's where that term comes from, the type of engine that Porsche uses, and Volkswagen used it, and even some of the Ferraris used it. And Roadster, as we defined earlier, is a convertible in which the top typically comes off. So you combine those two, a boxer engine in a Roadster, and you get the Boxster. Well, if we look at a modern Porsche Boxster and what you can get, it's very confusing because Porsche offers a lot of different variations of this car. They offer the Boxster. They offer the Boxster S. What does S stand for? Well, does that stand for sport? How about the next model up? That's the Boxster GT. Well, I thought Boxster was a convertible. 
and I thought Boxster S was a sport, as in sport car. Now they offer a Boxster GT. Well, yes, and they also offer a Boxster GTS. And if that's not enough, their top-of-the-line Boxster is the Boxster Spider. So it's the Boxer Roadster Spider. There you go. Porsche Boxster, Boxster S, Boxster GT, Boxster GTS, and Boxster Spider. Obviously, these terms have very less of a definitive meaning for most modern manufacturers. Let's take a look at Ferrari, another manufacturer of sports cars. Ferrari has, and has had in the past, a number of GT cars with an additional identifier after that. They had the GTB and the GTS. The GTB stood for Berlinetta, and that was a coupe version of whatever that model was. And the GTS was a spider or convertible version. This can be seen in vehicles like the 308 and the 328. Those both came in a 328 and 308 GTB, coupe version, and a GTS, a spider version. But in some older Ferraris, even older than the 308, the S didn't stand for spider. It stood for sport. Then, of course, you've got a couple of cars like the Ferrari F40 and the LaFerrari, and they're both classified on Ferrari's own website as GT cars. It's hard to imagine the F40 and the LaFerrari not being identified as true sports cars, but they are not convertibles. They're not spiders. They do have a hardtop, so I guess technically, in our original definition, they would be GTs. Now, in the 50s and 60s, Ferrari had a number of cars with that S in the name, as I mentioned, but they identify them as sport prototypes, meaning they were initially conceived for racing. So the various car names and models originated to have a very specific definition of what it meant to be a certain type of car, primarily based upon its design and use. And it's evolved over the years. It's been morphed. It's been modified, it's been adapted onto different types of vehicles. And nowadays we see it used to define just about anything a car manufacturer wants it to define. Actually, names no longer mean anything whatsoever. And here's what I mean by that. Let's go back to our friends at Porsche. Porsche has a 2020 electric vehicle coming out called the Taycan. It's their all new, all electric four-door sedan. And it comes in three models. It comes in the Taycan 4S, Taycan Turbo, and Taycan Turbo S. Let me say that again. Their all-electric vehicle comes as the Taycan 4S, the Taycan Turbo, and the Taycan Turbo S. That's right. There is a turbo version of their all-electric vehicle. Now, if you're not familiar with what a turbo is, it's an actual item. It's a turbine that's connected to the exhaust of a gas-powered internal combustion engine, which then spins at incredibly high speeds and forces the air-fuel mixture into the gasoline engine for greater combustion efficiency and power. It's an actual item. It's not just a name or something that signifies additional performance, which seems to be how Porsche is now using it. This is an absurd approach especially from a company which was one of the leaders in modern-day turbocharging back in the 70s. If you don't quite understand this, I'll give you a few comparables. This would be like adding a 4X4 on the side of a front-wheel drive car. No, the car only has drive power going to the front wheels. Not all four of them, but let's call it a 4x4 anyways. 
Or how about calling the latest Ford pickup the nuclear F-150? Sorry, but no road vehicle is going to be getting a nuclear power plant. Or how about a Mustang or Camaro V8 with a four-cylinder engine? Or having Red Bull sell decaffeinated energy drinks with 70 grams of caffeine? Or Reese's peanut butter cups with no peanut butter in them? Or a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with no jelly? Or a diet soda with 200 calories? Or a McDonald's cheeseburger with no cheese? Or chocolate milk with only strawberry flavoring? Or a new Kawasaki Cafe racer called the Tricycle? Or how about a new iPhone that only plays music and takes pictures? Porsche, don't call a vehicle without a turbocharger on it a turbo. Do you think your customers are really that ignorant? Well, I guess they do. Lots of definitions, lots of names, lots of debate, lots of changes and differing understandings over the years of what different car identifiers are. So let's wrap this up because I'm sure many of you are even more confused now than you were at the beginning of this podcast. I guess I'll end it referencing back to the name of that article written in Road and Track years ago. Remember when names used to mean something? Thanks for listening to the show. For additional features, please visit the website at classicsportscar.com. Please join us again for another episode. Until then, I hope to see you out on the road in your own classic sports car.